You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show. Politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy The Right Show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, John. Bob, how are you holding up? I uh, can't complain. You mean pandemic-wise or what? Yeah, I mean, what else? Well, uh, yeah, what else? Exactly. You know, I, I have very few complaints. I mean, I'm not, not I, I, there are people who are much more adversely affected than me. How about you? Well, I actually, um, this is a momentous day for me. So I'll share you a bit of news that I got. Just Wait, like, first let me say, I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show. You're John Horgan, famous science writer. You write for Scientific American. You've written books. Maybe we'll plug some of them later. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, TV series devs, uh, all the philosophical scientific uh, issues raised by it, and go at least 15 minutes without plot spoilers. Now, okay, go back to what you're saying. I, I just have to share this because um, it just happened and it's really changed my outlook on what's happening now. So um, I, I got really sick in early March. Mm. I had uh, at the time I thought it was a flu, very intense flu. And we it, should say you live in uh, near the epicenter, just just across a river from Manhattan, but uh, right. right. And New Jersey is right. Yeah, behind. that's that's where I am. New Jersey recently uh, dubious distinction, but uh, took the lead for for a daily death toll over New York a couple of days ago. I noticed that. And, you know, I, I teach at a university which has a, uh, a large Asian population. So anyway, um, I was at risk of getting this thing. I got sick in early March, very high fever, chills, nausea. Um, I got over it within about the bad part, maybe three or four days, lingering effects for maybe two weeks. Then I got better. And it was only by the middle of March or late March that I thought, damn, I, you know, I think I might have had COVID-19. Wait, it didn't occur to you before that? No, but early March, when I got this, I mean, I got it like March 1st. And by then, I think mm. there were about 25 cases in the United States, and they were in Washington State. Well, yeah, we thought there were 20. In retrospect, there were many more afoot. But but right. you, So have you managed to get an antibody test or something? I just got an antibody test. I got tested on... Uh, Wednesday, there's a clinic a couple of blocks from me called City MD. It's a chain of walk-in uh, clinics, and um, and they just started giving the antibody test, and I got it. And I was, I mean, by now I've been telling people that I'm like 95 percent sure that I had this thing, and I just got the results. And Valerie also got sick right after me, and she also got. Valerie's tested. your significant other. 
Yeah, Valerie is my girlfriend and who lives in Manhattan. And, um, and she called me and said her result was negative, and she told me to check mine, and mine was negative as well. And it was – it's a real blow. I was sort of – I was feeling kind of invulnerable to this thing. I thought I had it. I, I know that you're not – So, that, so you, what do you think you did have, the, the, the flu or what? I, I, th- I guess I had the flu. I had a flu shot last fall, though. That was another reason why I thought um, this wasn't the flu. So uh, I know the antibody tests aren't 100% accurate, but CityMD claims that it's almost 100% accurate. And also, since Valerie got it at the same time, I figured if one of us was positive, I would assume both of us were actually positive, but we were both negative. And so now I'm... Did she take the same kind of test, the same brand? It was exactly the same kind. Mm -hmm. She went to the same clinic. And it has, but it, but when it's off, is it false negatives sometimes? They they claim a very very low, less than ninety nine percent chance, or less than one percent chance of false negatives. Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, so I, yeah, you know, and it it's just it's kind of hit me. I feel like I just got there was some like I had applied for a fellowship or something, and I was really expecting to get it, and then I didn't get it. It's kind of it's that, that let down. You're, you're you're disappointing that you didn't have COVID nineteen. Yeah, because now I feel feel like I need to be. I mean, I've been careful, right? But but I sort of felt like cocky that I already mm-hmm. had it. I beat it, and I had immunity. And now I guess that's not the case. So apparently not. And you you learned this how long ago? About a half hour ago. Oh gosh! So we're 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 hitting at a very head, bad time when you you've just discovered that you have not been gravely ill. I'm uh, <laughs> condolences to you and your loved ones. Um, so uh, I'll try to take your mind off it by talking about uh, quantum physics, free will, determinism, things like that. Yeah, uh, which arise in the course of this show, devs that is a product of this guy. What's his name? It's Alex. I'll find it. Oh, Garland. Alex Garland, who did the movie Ex Machina yeah. about AI, which was pretty good. I saw that. And I loved that movie, actually. Did you? Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was... I mean, because that was really a film about free will as well, uh, you know, because Debs gets into that too, but what I liked about Ex Machina, so th- this was about a crazy genius who uh, builds all these machines. Who runs um, a huge, it's almost like a Google-like company, and and he has this secret place, or not secret, but he has this uh, secluded hideaway, and some employee, some lucky employee wins the right to spend time with him out in seclusion. And go ahead, you can take it from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and discovers that he has created this, um, like a harem of beautiful female robots, and mm-hmm. uh, which then gradually over the course of the movie, especially this this one robot, um, becomes. Uh, she starts showing signs of independence. Assertiveness, yes. Yeah, and sentience. And what I love about it, there are two things. One is it sort of gets into the question of when an AI would start lying. I mean, at some point, if you're a really intelligent creature, 
you are going to learn the art of deception. Well, also, this is, you know, I think the Turing test is maybe actually mentioned in the movie, right? The, the classic test of uh, whether AI has reached the point where it determines, uh, deserves the term AI, as devised by Turing, Alan Turing, was um, can you tell whether it's a machine or not? If you interrogate it, um, can it successfully deceive you into thinking it's not a machine? Right. Except in this case, it you know, the deception, so you could program a machine to deceive. In this case, the, this female, this beautiful female robot that's been sort of, I, I forget if it's explicit, but I think the, you know, the creepy inventor of, of these machines is having sex with them. So he's exploiting them. You know, they're sort of his sex dolls. Yeah, that's not very explicit, as I recall. I mean, there's no like robot sex scenes or anything. But anyway, well, but, then, but then why would he? Why would he create these smoking hot female robots? Anyway. Maybe he's not exactly like you, John. Okay, I'm assuming he is. Um, so what happens is that she learns to deceive him. So the relationship between her and the the inventor, the head of the company, and then this guy coming from the outside becomes more and more complex because nobody is really sure if anyone else is telling the truth. Another thing that I love about this, and I think it's really philosophically deep, it's one of the best explorations of of the question of what uh, an intelligent machine would want. Um. Well, you know, so it becomes sentient. It, it wakes up somehow. Um, what would its goals be? And the movie, I thought, well, would they be goals any other than the ones programmed in? That 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 is, and, and this movie answers. I think yes. Uh, not everyone agrees, but that's you know. Well, in a lot of movies, you know, that the trite science fiction plot is that the machine just wants power. Um, but why is that? I mean, that... Right. I, I don't think you... I would not assume that unless you programmed it in. Why, why right. would you want power? I mean, humans uh, tend to seek to elevate their status as a result of their evolutionary uh, heritage. Doesn't happen with all species. You know, it's like a... You know, I, I don't know. But but so that never made sense to me. Um, but it was, you know, it was, I would say both this, it and devs are like, uh, you know, as better than the average such thing. I mean, there aren't that many movies or TV shows that actually grapple with philosophical issues and have any commercial success at all. And, 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 yeah. and devs really get, you know, uh, I, I'm not, a, are you aware of another, uh, another entertainment product? That, oh yeah, that gets into quantum physics, the various weird interpretations of quantum physics, and then intertwines them with questions of determinism and free will, which you know it makes sense. And I, I mean, I, I, I'm not the first person to suggest that quantum physics could be related to the question of free will, but I'm not aware of any other. And of course, I don't read novels of this sort. It, it must have happened in science fiction novels, but I'm not aware of. Uh, you know, a, a, a show or a movie that's done this. Maybe I'm okay. Um, first of all, I just I have to go back to X, X Machina and and just tell as you with, as befits a person with your visual background. It's a shame that those listening on podcast cannot see 
the way you have deployed one of these Zoom backgrounds to uh, transport yourself into science fiction land, especially cool when you when you raise your hand and do stuff with your fingers. Do that for our viewers. <laughs> oh, it looks yeah. like you have that's you know, like you have webs between your. Yeah, fingers. that's 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 pretty psychedelic. Yeah. Um, so what the robot wants at the end of the movie, it only becomes clear at the very end, is freedom. Yeah. She wants to be. She wants to be the master. Well, literal freedom, like get me off this damn island or whatever it is. It's like, get me the hell out of this place. Right. Well, I gave it this grandiose interpretation that she wanted what her master had. She wanted to to have self-control. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was really profound. And it was was a point that I hadn't seen made in any other. Well, yeah, um, but it's isn't it an obvious point? It's an obvious question about AI. I mean, it gets asked all the time. Um. The question of what machines want gets asked all the time, but um, but the the answer that it would be just uh, something like freedom. I guess it comes up in I don't know iRobot and some other things. The robots re- rebel against their their human masters for some reason. In Ex Machina, I found it I found it uh, I found it profound and even moving. Okay, now for devs. Um, in response to what you just said, you know, until you brought in quantum mechanics i was going to say that black mirror i think is one of the most sophisticated Oh well i mean i will say if i watched every black mirror i probably would have discovered uh a reference to every philosophical and scientific question there i mean black mirror is good it's just that i'm i'm not uh i'm not that conversant in it i've watched a small minority of the episodes but you're right uh well which one did you have in mind Oh God, it's been a while. Um, but they, they do really creepy things with the idea that you can create a computer simulation so detailed that people. Which is another theme in devs, by yes, the way. People become virtually alive in it. Right. And so you can have a kind of afterlife, um, uh, as a digital creature. Um, you know, and this means that you can, there, actually, one of the most moving episodes in Black Mirror was uh, about um, a woman whose husband dies, and then she finds out that there's a company that can create robots that look just like your your dear departed, and they reconstruct the personality based on. Yeah, I saw. Their, I did see that one actually. That was, and what I what, well, it was fascinating because, I mean, like, well, sorry to interrupt you, like, but 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 like many things in Black Mirror. It, it's like not an unreasonable extrapolation. It begins yeah. with the fact that we're all leaving more and more manifestations of our personality in emails, in texts, in video, and so on. And it begins by reconstructing her deceased mate. Just, I think, initially, in fact, I think the, you know, the reconstruction of the deceased mate is maybe just texting her or something, or, or, or it's audio. And then eventually it becomes a physical you know, there's a robot, but but the point is, you know, you're right. We leave so much of ourselves on the digital record now. You could almost reconstruct me and predict what I would say in response to my wife in a given exchange, right? Right. But somehow, somehow, you know, the overall isness of Bob would it be there? Well, that's the question, right? I, or what, what is, is the isness? Is there an isness apart from the manifestations? What what was great about the episode was that the guy, in a way, I mean, there was this wonderful irony was that the the robot spouse was nicer than the than the actual spouse, and it 
it freaked out the wife and she kind of rejected it for rejected this new spouse for a while. Oh, and he was a fantastic lover. I think they made his penis a little bigger than the old, than the actual uh, spouse. Um, See, again, I don't recall. I'm not going to suggest that the things you emphasize in your recollections uh, do or don't say anything about the difference between John and Bob, but I just don't remember whether there was a thing about his penis. It was it was part of the irony of the show, which was that in some ways he was better, but he wasn't the same. And so um, it just – the wife still felt this terrible loss because she was reminded that she had actually lost this guy. The thing about Black Mirror that makes it successful – I think in the best episodes is that, I mean, you're right. They, they're sort of reasonable extrapolations of what we already have. And, but they really pull you in emotionally. Mm-hmm. And they, they take you in an unexpected directions emotionally with, uh, with their plots. It's not just about sort of cool gadgets that we might have in the next five or 10 years. It's right. how our, social interactions and our sense of self might be changed. And that's, I think devs does a really good job with that as well. Well, okay. That's interesting. You should say that because to me, devs just seems, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid major plot spoilers for the time being, but it, it, it seems like, whew, it's just taking you into a whole another world in the, in the distant future um, that, I am, am skeptical as to whether will ever actually transpire. So let's let's tell let's tell people what they'll know by the end of the first episode. I mean, first of all, we should say. I mean, let me ask you uh, just quickly, just like kind of yes or no. Did you wind up liking it? Because I liked it a lot. You liked and it a lot. Okay, I thought it sort of grew in power. And by the way. I think the reason I, I compare devs to the, the best Black Mirror episodes isn't the technolo- technological plausibility. It's the way it it moved me emotionally. I really cared about the characters. Um, and there's a kind of, I, I mean, I I don't think this is a spoiler, but there's a, one of the main characters has this terrible loss, a terrible trauma uh, that's transformed his life. And that's a, that's a really important part of the of the narrative of the series. Mm-hmm. And I I believe that I, I you know I really I felt for that guy and and he I mean let me just say it this is the guy who creates this company that has this extraordinary machine that can do various things that I guess we're gonna we're going to uh, talk about and he's he's at the same time a total monster and this wonderful, empathetic, very warm, loving person. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I thought he really worked as a character. In- yeah, and you know, it took me... Did you ever watch Parks and Recreation? I did. It took me a while to realize that he's Ron. Yeah. He, he, he looked so different. And I was like, where have I heard that voice? Yeah. And it's Ron on Parks and Rec in a, in a somewhat different uh, role. The um So... Yeah, okay, so, uh, I mean, first of all, science-wise, let me say that in discussing this, we'll be getting into the various interpretations of quantum physics, many worlds, the the so-called uh, de Broglie and Bohm, which is basically a hidden variables interpretation, I think. Um, 
there are some references to some others, but but we can also say that this guy's company uses quantum computers, you know, from early on to do something amazing. Quantum computers, when they finally develop, which they haven't they haven't evolved very far yet, but when they do, they will supposedly have this amazing power. Right. And he's using them to harness that power, and it, it winds up being important plot-wise, which is the correct interpretation of quantum physics? What is the world really, really like? How yeah. are we to interpret quantum physics? And, and that I thought was great. You just don't see much of that on TV. Um, the, that's, that's uh, I, I have questions top- about it. What's that? That's very topical. The interpretations of quantum mechanics are are a huge topic of discussion. I mean, it's always there in the background in physics and philosophy, but there have just been a lot of books about it recently, a lot of major figures uh, talking about it and arguing about it. Well, uh, I, is it true that hidden variable – well, let's say what we mean by hidden variable. So, you know, as people probably know, quantum physics seems to say that there's a certain indeterminacy about reality. It's like particle is going to – is going to go heads or tails. There's just no predicting it. So there's certain amount of uncertainty in the fabric of reality. It has no cause. Whether it goes heads or tails is just not a result of any physical cause in the universe. That's a common interpretation. There is, on the other hand, the hidden variable interpretation that Einstein favored because he didn't like the whole idea of quantum physics, which was that, no, no, there is a cause there's a reason it went heads or tails. We just don't know it. The variable is hidden. We have not managed to detect it yet. We can't measure it. So the seeming indeterminacy is just a reflection of our ignorance. But st- we still live in a deterministic universe. So, yeah, except that the so the I, I've really tried to understand the uh, the Bohm interpretation. Um, I, I interviewed David Bohm in the early oh, 1990s at his wow. home in England. And uh, he's a he was he died shortly after I interviewed him. Uh, he had heart disease, um, but he was this kind of tortured character. Uh, had a really difficult life. He was expelled from Princeton, I think, at one point for suspicion of being a communist. Actually, I think he was a communist. I, I think he 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 did. Yeah, uh, was he was he an undergraduate or a graduate student? No, he was. Uh, I I think he was um, uh, already. I'm not sure. Graduate- but I think he'd, he'd already yeah. finished his uh, graduate training. Um, and he also was this kind of mystical, spiritual person who wrote a lot about the spiritual implications of, uh, of physics and got involved in an intense relationship with this very big-time guru named Krishnamurti. Uh, right. So Bohm, Bohm was kind of a tortured uh, character. And, and yet, the, 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 his interpretation of quantum physics was toward the sober, less far out into the scale, right? Except in one major respect. So the way I understood it, he postulated this thing called the pilot wave, which was sort of a, an embodiment of the wave function. The wave function, instead of being a mathematical abstraction, is a physical thing that is guiding particles in various directions. And so you're right, it's, it's deterministic in one sense, but it's also a non-local theory, uh-huh. uh, which is something that Einstein did not like. That means you had, you know, what's, what's, what Einstein called spooky accident at a distance, that something happens if you get two particles that um, are entangled initially and described by a single wave function, 
they can go to the opposite ends of the universe. Uh, one is measured or collapses, its wave function collapses at this end of the universe that instantly, instantly determines the status of the particle at the other end of the universe. Right. So you have influence traveling faster than the speed of light, traveling instantaneously, which yeah. isn't the same as saying that humans can transmit information to one another instantaneously. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean, in some sense, influenced uh, moves from one place to another. That's one way to put it, instantaneously. That freaked Einstein out. You're right. Spooky action at a distance was his term. Um, apparently, this has been corroborated experimentally, I, I gather. I mean, it's funny. On the one hand, I hear that hidden variables is making a comeback. Uh, on the other hand, there, you know, this entanglement phenomenon that you just described uh, with instantaneous uh, influence uh, at a distance seems to be corroborated experimentally with more and more confidence over in recent years. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, it was first confirmed experimentally in the late 1980s, I think. So, and then, then there have been more and more confirmations uh, since then. I think now it's just accepted What's interesting is that that doesn't seem to have had a decisive effect on all the debate about um, what's the correct way to see quantum mechanics and what's really going on with reality. So there's this guy named Sean Carroll. Who- yeah, yeah, so he's kind of a popularizer, of, a physicist, but a popularizer. Let me just ask you quickly. So is Bohm a case of a guy who believes... He does buy entanglement, unlike Einstein, and yet he's a hidden variable variables guy like Einstein. Is that the thing? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, okay. that's, that's my, my my understanding. But Bohm was different than Einstein because he had this this mystical point of view too. So he told me that that there wouldn't be like a a correct interpretation. We would never reach the point where we really understand what's going on. Um, in the micro realm or with reality in general, that we would always just penetrate to deeper and deeper levels. And there was no end to that. And I think that is, I, I think that's probably a minority view in physics. Most physicists, the reason they become physicists is because they want to figure things out. And they think that there, there should be some kind of endpoint to that process. Okay. And before you, get to Sean Carroll, we can say that in devs, this becomes important because the, uh, well, at least the de Broglie bohm is depicted in devs as being consistent with determinism, right? Right. And, and, uh, and I, it may be, if it's a hidden variables, uh, version of quantum physics in, in principle, it should be compatible with determinism. Um, Except, and, Bob, it's a really weird kind of determinism. Okay. Non, non-local determinism isn't determinism in the in the okay. ordinary sense at all. But um, in in devs, that subtlety doesn't. When you say isn't especially important, I, I mean in devs, there's the deterministic view, and then there's the many worlds view, which is that no, uh, it's that like. You know, when a particle, uh, is it going to go heads or tails, so to speak? Well, it does both. And each of those 
every time there's such a branching point, um, you create a whole new world. So there's a world you're about to take issue with my description, but but uh, no, I was just gonna I was gonna qualify it because the multiverse theory. I think the appeal is that if you look at the whole multiverse, the many you know all the many worlds that have branched off. Um, that is a deterministic system. Well, that's an int- that okay. That's an interesting uh, point because, um, I, I well, I want to pick up on that. For now, I'll say these two alternative views, kind of what you might call a more straightforward, plainly deterministic flavor of interpretation, represented by hidden variables, and a more kind of bizarre out there scenario of many worlds, where according to many worlds. There are now uh, worlds in which there's a different version of me who's doing something else because yeah. history branched and created a new world. And in some of these worlds, you are present, but in some, they're not. And then you're in some worlds that I'm in where we do know each other, but some worlds where we do. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's only, you, have, you have a mohawk hair, haircut and another I can do one that. I, I can do that now. I can do that now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, uh, <laughs> Yeah, your hair, I gotta say, that, that backdrop, the zoom backdrop is just doing wonders for the contours of your hair. Well, I, I'll, I told you before we went on the air, but now I'll just repeat it that, you know, my hair is getting long. I normally just have a buzz cut and I just started experimenting with combing it straight back. And I, I decided that I look like David Lynch and, uh, you know, I, I like David Lynch. So I'm going to go with this for a while. You are, you are three weeks of lockdown away from a man bun. <laughs> um, you, you better hope. You better hope. We all better hope that the lockdown is not permit that. <laughs> okay. So, um, anyway, the the guy who runs the company, Forrest, who played Ron in Parks and Rec, uh, he starts off for reasons we will come to, insisting that many worlds is wrong. He doesn't want to hear about many worlds. He wants to live in this deterministic. Uh, universe. Very, we will get back to why that is, but these are the two kind of competing, uh, worldviews. Or, there, there are other interpretations of physics, but these are the two that occupy center stage. Um, I think it's more important to him that there be one universe than that it be deterministic. It's the, it's the, the idea that there's just one world. And it's mm. that world that's important and that he wants to affect. Yeah, although there is the question. <laughs> it's getting hard not to do a little bit of a plot spoiler of whether a non-deterministic world would give him everything he wants to get out of the computer. Right. So let, let's quickly tell people what we know by the end of the first episode which will mean no major plot spoilers. It's an eight-episode series, and I I don't think it's going to be renewed. I think the idea was this was the only season. Maybe I'll turn out to be wrong, but I think it's done. People can stream it. It's it was it's a collaboration of of FX and Hulu. Although I don't think it ever appeared on FX, the cable channel. Um, and it costs like if you're not part of Hulu, it costs me like thirteen dollars or something to watch the whole all eight episodes. Um, but uh, so first episode. You're at this weird company. There's this guy with a Russian accent named Sergey, who uh, is obviously this hotshot uh, researcher AI guy. He's sitting down 
with Forrest, the, the head of the company, and a few other people to show Forrest what he can do. What he can do is take this very simple organism, a nematode, which may be the simplest uh, genome of any organism. I don't know, but uh, no, no, because it's not—it's multi-celled, right? But it's a worm, right? Is that right? Yeah, it's tiny, has a simple genome and and nervous system. And he shows that he's got a program that can actually predict the behavior of this simple worm up to a point, up to, I don't know how many seconds or minutes into the future, but he can actually do it. It's an expression of determinism. If we know what the genes are and what the environment is, we can, we can carry it out and simulate precisely what this creature will do. Yeah. So that, that kind of foreshadows some themes that are going to come up. I mean, do we live in a determined universe where everything is in principle predictable or not? Well, this yeah. is exactly the kind of thing Forrest wants to see. Obviously, he has an interest in this type of research. Right. And so he said he the guy gets promoted to devs, right? Which is this very secretive part of the organization uh where it stands for kind of devs in the sense of R&D, I guess. <clears throat> Turns out to have a second meaning later on, but and this super high security thing Right. He's got to pass through all these zones and it's almost like a, an electromagnetically sealed island, right? Like where that he's, he's got to transport himself against across some sort of barrier and, and, and he enters it and, and he sees what they're working on and, 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 and Forrest just kind of says, or somebody say, whoever's shepherding him and says, just, just take a look at the, what we're working on. Here's your computer. Take a look at what we've done so far. Here's the program. Here's, you know, look at this code and you'll get the picture. You're smart enough. And he's like looking at it for a while and finally goes, Oh my God. And he says to one of the, like, the, I think it's Katie, the supervisor. Uh, he says, and this is a significant exchange in retrospect. He says, this changes everything. And she says, but it doesn't. That's the whole point. Yeah. Right. And, um, then, uh, well, he gets for unknown reasons kind of ill, but anyway, he, he starts trying to take pictures of the screen with his watch covertly, which is like, hmm, what's up with this? And then by the end of the episode, uh, he, he, he leaves the place. Turns out Forrest knows. He was taking secret. He was taking pictures of the code. Forrest confronts him. There's a, a burly and, and very menacing security guy who also confronts him. By the end of the episode, he seems to be dead. Uh, and we should add, and this is important, his, his girlfriend, Lily, who also works there, she does cryptography. She doesn't work in devs, but she works at the company. Notices his absence. He doesn't come home that night. She reports it. She's concerned. Uh, and, uh, and I mean, we might as well say it does, it does turn out he's dead. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's pretty much supposed to be understood by the end. By yeah. the second episode is completely clear. Um, so there's some spooky foreshadowing though in that episode that I thought was really effective. One was that exchange that you just mentioned between this Russian guy and this kind of creepy uh, woman who works in Dev, where he says this changes everything. And she says, but you know, it doesn't really, she also, she and Forrest, she's like his Lieutenant or partner 
uh, intellectual partner in devs. And they have a couple of conversations that are very cryptic that seem to indicate like they're talking about that something that might happen or something that has happened. And they're sort of saying, but what difference does it make? Right. It doesn't matter. And so right. you're thinking, wow, okay, well, what does that mean? Why does it not matter? And it, and this is related to the question of determinism. And I'm just going to say that the, the machine at the center of devs is just, it's this like ultimate quantum computer, which I'm pretty sure will never actually be built. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a cool sci-fi, uh, MacGuffin. It can, it has a program that can allow it to recreate the past, go infinitely far back into the past and recreate scenes. Not with complete precision. Though. Right. Uh, uh, you know, in the beginning. And at this point, okay, I think we've given people enough, um, Enough of a sense that we can depart from our no plot spoilers constraint and just, I don't mean we, I, I want to give away the ending right now, but from now on, let's, let's just speak freely. I, I would recommend people see it. I, I didn't love, love, love it. For my purposes, it was a little slow sometimes, but my wife felt otherwise. And yeah, I really say, like it. as I said, because I, you know, this guy Forrest, well, for, we're giving spoilers, a major one, but this comes pretty early in the uh, series. We learned that he was once married and had a, this sort of enchanting child, a little girl who was maybe uh, seven or eight years old. Her, her name is Amaya. The company is named after her. And there's this somewhat creepy, huge, like, statue of Amaya, kind of. It looks more like a doll almost, but it's like, I don't know, what is it, like, 80 feet high or something at the middle of the corporate campus. It's pretty bizarre. And, and in certain uh, prospects kind of creepy looking, right. And, 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 and uh, so yeah, in ways that make it look really creepy. And we realized eventually that Forrest has never recovered from this horrible loss and that devs is somehow aimed at, restoring the life he had or helping him come to terms with this giant gaping wound in the middle of his psyche, which is, which again, I thought engaged me emotionally. Um, You know, intellectually, I thought that the series was really interesting, although, you know, like all, all things involving motion back and forth through time and, and uh, there, you know, we get into the concept of, uh, the simulated worlds also as well, well as many worlds, some of that, the logic got a little bit um, squishy. I have questions uh, I will raise about that. Yes. But I, you know, I didn't care because I, I, because I really, I, I I found that the character of Forrest very appealing in a way, you know, the whole series is suffused with death. And there's this idea that somehow this magical machine can help, help us, overcome mortality in some way yeah yeah by the end that that has happened so um let me can i just say something about multiverse theory speaking i happen to have reviewed this book by sean carroll oh yeah last fall called um something deeply hidden i think is the name and it's this passionate defense of the multiverse 
And uh, I wrote a very, I, I thought the book is very well written. Sean Carroll is a gifted writer and he's a very smart guy. Uh, but I, I found it, you know, the whole idea of a multiverse is, as science is preposterous to me. <laughs> um, I mean, he basically says he calculates at one point the number of universes that you would get since the beginning of uh, the Big Bang. And, and it's not just you and I branching off from ourselves into other universes. Right. Every single particle in our bodies is branching off constantly, many times a second yeah. in other universes. And so if you consider that, you know, count every particle in the entire universe, you get this enormous number. I actually wrote it down. It's two to the 10th power to the 110th power. Oh, that's too many. Which is really big. <laughs> so it just, the reason I don't like multiverses and, you know, physicist Brian Greene has written very enthusiastically about them. He's another popular physics author um, and, and lots of other people is that it's, first of all, there's no way of ever proving the existence of any of these other universes. Uh, and so I don't think this is even science, really. Also, I have a kind of an ethical problem. It seems to me that this is like a scientific form of escapism. That when we, you know, you start, it's, it's fun to think about, well, what am I doing in all my other universes? Uh, sure. Um, but it, that, yeah, the, the, there's a for, there's a there's a, a part of the series where this uh, becomes vivid. Where I mean, this is at least related to what you're saying. Where there's this person named Lyndon, uh, I, who I think is meant to be cryptically androgynous. Yeah. Turns out it's a female actor, but I don't think it's supposed to be clear mm-hmm. whether Lyndon is is male or female. But in any event, Lyndon um, is. Uh, Katie says to Lyndon, look, you're the advocate of many worlds. And what's going to uh, happen next, she's actually predicting it because, you know, uh, the, 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 this massive computer supposedly gives them the power to actually predict the future because it's, sim- it's, it's carrying it – ca- it's so powerful it can carry the current state of affairs into the future and, and predict uh, up to a certain point what's going to happen. And she says, you're going to climb over the edge of this bridge and try to balance because you have so much faith in the many worlds hypothesis that you will be sure that one of you want somewhere in some world, there will be a you that survives. Yeah. Even if there are also ones that fall and die. Yeah. Now, just quickly, a weird thing about that is this is neither here nor there, maybe, but is your interpretation that actually... I mean, on the one hand, it does seem that many worlds at that point is uh, vindicated because you see multiple versions of Lyndon, but none of them live. They all yeah. fall, right? That was, and- a very, that was a very powerful scene, I thought, I, I because, yeah, my interpretation, first of all, I expected her to push him. But as I don't, I, I don't, unless no, I- No, there was none of that. At I, first, Lyndon is like, what are you talking about? And then suddenly goes, oh- I see the beauty of it. it. It's like coming full circle. Yeah. yeah. I cry, you know, you know, I climb over the edge of the bridge. Yeah. And then he dot every one of his selves. Everyone we see dies falls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, that was, I didn't know what to make of that. Was it a malicious trick on her part? Anyway, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. What were you, were you, uh, 
you were saying something about, oh, uh, that many worlds is escapism because you can always tell yourself, well, there's some world somewhere, it's yeah. like I didn't make this mistake or what? What is, how is it escapism? I, I feel like it's similar to, you know, a lot of big shot scientists um, and technologists have talked about uh, singularity um, happening pretty soon and we're going to live in cyberspace and or they talk about colonies on Mars. I feel like there is this really powerful strand of escapism in science over the last few decades promulgated by some really leading scientific figures. Stephen Hawking was into all these kinds of things and the multiverse is sort of the ultimate example of that. And meanwhile, we're living in a world with some really serious problems where there are people suffering. And, and so I get a little bit self-righteous about, um, I, I mean, nonfiction, supposedly scientific um, exploration of these ideas, as opposed to something like devs, which I think is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a work of art. It's exploring these ideas because they can um, help us understand ourselves better. You know, so the, the multiverse and, and the quantum computer and simulations and all that stuff in this series is a way of helping us understand ourselves better. And, and uh, you're not really taking the science that. No, that no I, I actually wound up finding it kind of inspiring in a way. I mean, we'll eventually get to what I, I, I see as the takeaway about free will or, or, or I, I don't know, subject to interpretation, but we'll talk about that. But I liked that part. Uh, maybe we should advance the plot, uh, some more. So, turns out, Sergei, Lily's boyfriend, was a Russian spy, not really a political spy, but more like industrial espionage. Uh, and the, the devs people, uh, the, 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 the menacing security guy, uh, and to, with force knowledge, no doubt, orchestrates the, uh, a false video record that seems to show that Sergei committed suicide via self-immolation. It's all a lie. They killed him. Lily wants to get to the bottom of the whole thing. They show her the video, like, sorry about your self-immolating boyfriend. She's not satisfied. She goes and turns to a pre- prior boyfriend who who is still, you know, mourning her loss. She dumped him. He's a brilliant uh, computer guy, and he helps her hack the smartphone of Sergei. And she discovers the Russian spy thing, blah, blah, blah. But I guess the key, the key thing is that within a few episodes, we learn more about what the connection between Forrest's loss, he lost his daughter, and the devs project. It seems to have something to do with he wants to go back in some sense and return to the time when his daughter was born. This devs machine, they're trying to get good enough they're trying to, to hone the machine to a point where they can actually exactly recreate any point in time. You know, early on, they show a, a, a fuzzy version of the crucifixion and they say, see, you can kind of see Jesus, but it's still fuzzy because this machine isn't perfect. Yeah. And then the trick, this is where the it, it got a little um, blurry. What's going on with devs? And I, I don't know if it was deliberately blurry or if they just couldn't decide what to do with their material, but there is a suggestion, you know, they had this recurring image of a, of a mouse that was dead. I mean, it's, you ah. know, 
desiccated little mouse corpse. And then it's revived somehow. And it seems to be revived in this world. But later in the series, the idea is that the, the computer creates these simulated worlds that are so accurate that essentially they are real. They're not simulations. They're as real as the world in which the computer exists that is creating these, these simulations. And so then at that point, the, the resurrection of the child, you, you realize becomes something that happens in one of these simulations. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting idea because then also you can, and this comes up at the very end, uh, the suggestion is that the machine can, and this is not deterministic, the machine can manipulate the world in various ways. Well, to make in, it, in, what, in what sense? To make it better, to make it happier. So at the very end... Oh, can it? I mean, or is it just... Uh, is it just... It can go... It, it can, in principle recreate well well let's let, let me let me let me insert one uh one kind of thematic and and plot development before we get to that so you got these two versions of quantum physics uh two interpretations you got the hidden variable you got the many worlds uh it becomes clear that forest is committed to uh to the hidden variables he doesn't like the idea that there are many worlds. And what happens is Lyndon comes in. He says, I made a breakthrough. Here, listen to this. This is exactly Jesus's voice in Aramaic. And it's it, there's no noise. And the way I did this is, what I discovered is, you have to assume that many worlds is true. You have right. to assume that, that that's the right interpretation of quantum physics. That's what allowed me to jigger with the algorithm in a way that allows us to exactly recreate the past. He thinks Forrest is going to be delighted. Forrest is like, no, because if it's many worlds, how do we know that's the real Jesus? Which Jesus? Are there what, many Jesuses? I want there to be one Jesus. Now, it turns out that what he really wants is he wants there to be one daughter, right? He doesn't right. want... When he goes back and recreates his daughter, or at least a simulation of her, he doesn't want to be like which daughter, you know, right? That, yeah. it, that's your reading of this, right? Yes, absolutely. And I like that, again, because emotionally it makes sense. It's sort of the comparable to um, you don't want like, you're, you know, your, your um, loved one dies and let's say technology um, allows you, in the, as in the case of this Black Mirror episode to create an Android replica, or let's say you could clone your loved one and create a replica. Well, it's not the same. You want the actual person who's died. You want that person to be resurrected. And I, you know, that I thought was kind of this dilemma at the core of the movie. Although I, I don't think we should conflate two things, right? I mean, on the one hand, there's the question of like, wait, if you're just going back and, recreating a computer version of exactly the child that existed. Is that really a child? There's that question, but that question arises whether it's many worlds or, you know, whether you go back to the exact world you were in through many worlds or, um, or you, or, or it's hidden. There was only one world to begin with. That question arises. Forrest seems troubled by a different thing, which is like, I, I only want one version of my daughter, which is, 
I mean, as we'll later come to realize more fully, in a way that's weird. I mean, I mean, because you know, one thing I said to to uh, to my wife halfway through is like, you realize with many worlds, there's a world in which his daughter never died, and there's a world in which uh, neither of Lily's boyfriends died. Another plot spoiler. The other, the former boyfriend gets off by the, by the group, the menacing security guard as well. But, um, and so it's a little odd in a way, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, why isn't, why isn't, in other words, what's the point? Forrest wants to recreate, I guess, this version of his daughter pre-death, even though with this interpretation of quantum physics, she's still going to die, you know? Well, it's not only that, there, there's sort of a, there's a weird mix of two far out things. There's, there's the multiverse theory. There's the many worlds theory, which is weird enough. And, um, you know, it's the, the idea that maybe one of these branching universes, um, bad things don't happen or this particular bad thing didn't happen. Uh, but then the movie also brings up simulation theory. So the computer is also, um, and and this was where the theory I thought became a, came um, a little bit tangled and not necessarily in a good way. Although it didn't bother me that much, but then the computer is just recreating these worlds. And at the very end of the movie, uh, and I, you know, it, it satisfied me. Even though if I thought about it too much, I'd realize that maybe it didn't really make sense. But at the very end of the movie, there's the sense that everything is going to be okay. And some of these, they're not like other worlds necessarily that are branching off from this one as in multi, uh, many worlds theory. There are other worlds that are created by the computer in this world. Well, yeah, but I think the idea is the computer is when it goes backwards in time by the end. So we should say eventually Forrest resigns himself to okay. The way this computer recreates the past is through is by accepting the reality of many worlds. Okay, he, yeah. he's accepted that by the end. But my understanding after bumping off this or threatening to bump off this kid, well, and not, he he threatens to yeah. I, I mean, he, he fires the kid who made the breakthrough premise on many worlds, and then the kid is encouraged to to fall off a bridge by Forrest's uh, lieutenant, who turns out also to be his lover, where yeah. we're just spoiling the plot left and right at this point. Um, and, uh, y- y- you know, so, y- yeah, that, uh, Forrest has his, <laughs> has his dark side, you might say. The whole operation does. Although, I, I mean, you could say, if you wanted to excuse the dark side, you'd say, you know, he can see the future. I mean, like one thing the machine can do, uh, now can it do this before the, uh, before Lennon perfects the algorithm? Yeah, it can. Uh, it, it can see at some distance into the future. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that becomes critical that there's a, there's a wall on, on how far it can see into the future. But, um, uh, and I, I think he might, he sees, so what's, what, the things that are going to happen, he's just seen that they're inevitable. Yeah, I'm going to have this guy killed or whatever. It's like, what, what's a person to do? That, that is the future, right? Like, um, I, I think 
there's 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 a lot of theology embedded into this thing. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I was going to ask you, do you think Lily is a Messiah figure? Um, I think you can totally make the case. Yeah. Now that you mention it, she's a little bit like uh, like Neo in The Matrix, who sort of um, who uh, you know rebels against the machine yeah. and and has an act of genuine free will right. that um, that completely disrupts the system and should be impossible. Right. And so that was... And there, like there's this. a shot of her, by the way, kind of splayed out like crucifixion-like style uh, late in the thing. I forget the details. Yeah, and then there's a happy ending. She's reunited with her lover. That's where I thought, and this is this is what I would consider a theological question, if, if it seemed that at that point that Forrest had the ability to design simulations in any way possible and make them happy, make them like heaven. And so then the question is, see, what? I don't, I don't, that's not my take. I mean, well, let's finish the, let's go ahead and kind of finish the plot, so to speak, the, the basic contours. So, uh, let's see. So Lily, at some point, she's like, uh, she and her former boyfriend, this is before he's killed, go, go see, uh, Forrest. She discovers that Katie is Forrest's lover because they're inhabiting the same house. Uh, she has a private conversation with Katie. Uh, Katie says, you know, by the way, we can tell, we can see the future. I can tell you what you're going to do. You're going to come to devs where you've never been, like yeah. tomorrow or something or, or day after tomorrow. I can tell you all that, but beyond a certain point, the, 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 the future gets fuzzy and that seems to have something to do with what you do at, when you're at devs. You do something that ends the ability of our computer to see into the future. Yeah. And, um, it turns out that what Lily does, she does come to devs. Uh, I guess she comes with a gun planning to, kill them in retaliation or something, but she does come to devs and she commits an act of free will. She departs from the script. She yeah. departs from what they, they have predicted she will do. And, and it turns out that that act of free will is what rendered the rest of the future indeterminate. It, right. it, it's, it's, and, 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 and fuzzy. And, uh, it also helps usher in a world in which, uh, Forrest happily, he somehow enters uh, what I take to be a retrospective simulation of one of the worlds that existed in which yeah. his daughter didn't die. He somehow enters that world. He's going to live happily uh, ever after. Lily is going to join him in that world. At least that version of them, are, right? It's it's understood that there are other versions of them, possibly in less pleasant worlds, but... But the world you see, he, he kind of says that. And, but it, getting, and she has her old boyfriend who had been killed. Right. He, he, you, you know, she has a choice of boyfriends. Right. They're both alive. And yeah. she, and she says, Sergey, you know, in retrospect, uh, you weren't really leveling with me. You were a Russian spy. So I like the other guy. Yeah. And, uh, and, but, but on the, on the, on the, um, before we get into the various questions raised by this, so I'm taking it that this is a retrospective simulate, not a world force creates. Right. It's a, it's a world that in many worlds existed. It's not the one he previously inhabited, or at least not the him 
that has been present in this series, that version of him inhabited a world in which she was killed. But now he's in a different world, and that's and he's in a simulation of the world. But but for practical purposes, it is the world. He's happy. the The thing I want to say about Lily as Messiah is, I mean, this first occurred to me as like, wait a second, if this was the first moment at which things become indeterminate, does that mean through all of history she's the first person to exert free will? I mean, there's something right. special about this woman, right? Yeah. She's and, and there's a scene, and and when they after this, when they are in the, the, the Nirvana world of the past, where his daughter's alive, I think he says to her, this is resurrection. I think he uses the word, and I think he also says, this happened because of you. Yeah. And, and, um, the last thing I'd say is there's the flashback early, much earlier of her when she's young playing go with her uncle or something, or father or grandfather. And, uh, He's saying there's something special about you because she he, he's like, wow, you're thinking like several moves ahead or something. And and she basically says, I'm just going with my feelings. So she so a that seems to be a reference to volition, right? Feelings like I do what I feel like doing. B. Um, she's she's special. She has a special she has a special kind of intuition. So I, I, I would be surprised um if she was not meant to be in some ways a messiah, or if that wasn't meant to be one of the speculations you could come away from this with. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, by the end, th- there is also the, the, um, the head of security, Kenton, I think his name is, mm-hmm. at, who um, I don't ever remember him playing bad guys in other shows. He's, you know, a sort of a character actor who's been around a long time, but he was, extraordinarily vicious in this. Mm. I'd say he was evil and he sort of was a, was a plot driver. So uh, I don't know that maybe I'm, I'm overplaying the theology, but I saw him as a kind of satanic figure, but a satanic figure that you need to keep things interesting, to create drama. And this brings me back to, you know, I, I keep saying, I think that, at the end, it looks like they've created these little paradises. I've always been fascinated by the idea of heaven, especially if you think of it in terms of a simulation. There is this wonderful old theory going back to the 80s called the Omega Point Theory. Yeah, um, Teilhard de Chardin. Oh, it goes back. I mean, well, that, that goes way back. I mean, I mean, Teilhard wrote about this uh, Point Omega, um, you know, in the, in the 30s or whatever. Well, this is, this is a riff on that idea okay, um, from two physicists, Frank Tipler and John Barrow. Okay. And uh, they're basically saying that the universe, they use all the, you know, these theories of physics and, or, and uh, computer science to imagine a future in which the entire universe has been tr- uh, turned into a gigantic thinking machine. Freeman Dyson has also written a lot about, about this. And, um, and they, their original version of the idea you know, in the eighties, we still thought that the universe at some point was going to start collapsing into a big crunch. And as the universe collapses to a point, it's computing power spikes toward infinity. So it basically becomes all powerful. Anything it can imagine um, can be real. So it's essentially this godlike thing. And, um, and Tipler 
thought really hard about what this thing will simulate and, um, and decided that uh, it might simulate a world like ours. Because if the simulation is too great, it'll be too boring. So it needs to simulate a world in which there is drama, in which there is evil. And then you realize, of course, that we've already reached the, the Omega point, And this is a simulation of the Omega point. And I thought that there was something like that going on in, in, uh, in devs, that the whole thing was already part of the simulation, which is also an idea that you find in, in uh, the matrix. And, and if you, and the problem with simulations, if you make them too good, then there's no drama, there's no excitement, there's no plot. And so you have to reintroduce the element of evil to make them interesting. Now, come to think of it, there may even be a reference to the idea of the kind of recursiveness of simulations within simulations. I mean, they are doing simulations, um, but they are, I think there may be a reference to them doing a simulation within a simulation. There's, there certainly is the idea implicitly, if nothing else, that there's no real difference between a simulation and the real world. What does it matter? I mean, you're in it. It feels real. Um, and, and by the end of it, uh, you know, they're in, uh, one of many worlds. They understand that there are simultaneously worlds that versions of them may exist in, um, that, uh, are not so great. And so they should be all the more grateful for the fact that they're in that world. Uh, the forest kind of says that to Lily at the end. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of a happy ending. I have, uh, I want to talk more about the free will stuff, but I have a, a, a question, a kind of that, uh, a problem that arose in my mind <laughs> and it's related to a problem I have with many worlds uh, it's like so by the end of it they agree that, you know they're saying many worlds is the world we're in so to speak it is the multiverse at various points in the future there will be a branching and there will be more than one world created okay well then how is it that 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 computer they are still speaking about simulating the future it's like right. it's like uh so okay the computer simulates uh 5 seconds ahead and then there's another like particle split and and two worlds are created well how does the computer know which one to follow quote yeah. you are in both forest all these characters are in both they start behaving differently eventually because they're in different worlds with different circumstances but which one is the future? So on the one hand, the the series says we're in a multiverse. On the other hand, it, it keeps acting as if it makes sense to talk about the future. And in fact, this computer simulates, quote, the future. Or the past, for that matter. Well, no, but see, the past, this is the thing. The past makes sense. In many worlds, if you follow, if you're going back in time, there's only one path. There's no branching points as you go backwards, right? right? Yeah. Right. So there is a, there is an inexorable linear path as you go backwards in many worlds, but not as you go forwards. Right. So when you go back, you're, there there are all these other branches right. around you, but they're you're separated from them. Right. Um, you know, the, uh, whereas in the future, the branches split off from where you are right now. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I'd like to, I, I suspect that that's just kind of a, 
a confusion in the logic of the, you know, the science on which the plot is based. And I think any, you know, time travel story. Right. right. It's like, it's like interstellar has, I remember there was a problem with that. It's like, if you're going to do time travel, you're just going to run into logical problems. Right. And you don't want to dwell on it too much because again, it's, you know, the point is what's happening to the characters. Um, Yeah. So yeah, this show, this show really worked for me. And, and listen, I, I'm, you know, I'm a, Hardcore free will believer. I, I waste much too much energy trying to, uh, persuade, a, an indifferent world that free will is real and it's something that we absolutely need. I think we need the concept more than, more than God. And, um, I'd like to see it, you know, it's a central, uh, concept in a lot of sci-fi, some sci-fi that's good, some that's not so good. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the series Westworld. But uh, I saw much of the first season, I guess. I gather the newest version is in another world altogether, but it's it's yeah, the, the latest season I don't think is very good. But it, it's um it's sort of about this question of free will. At what point do the robots wake up? They they not only become sentient, yep. but they cap- they become capable of making decisions on their own. And in this case, you know, then they just start like shooting humans. Um well, so you would too if you had been treated the way they were by the humans. Yeah, right. Uh, but um, I'm glad that our artists, if not our scientists, are such believers in free will. Einstein once said, and this really upsets me. I, you know, I, I, I revere uh, Einstein like anybody else. But he once said, I think this is in a letter to uh, a friend, that if the if the moon were sentient it would think it was choosing to orbit the earth. So the implication is that we actually have no more freedom than the moon, than, than one yeah. heavenly object orbiting the another in the grip of, uh, of gravity. What's interesting is that he, another uh, more famous quote from Einstein is that he wanted to know, whether God had any choice in creating the universe. Right. Which he meant metaphorically, but, uh, and I'm not even sure what he meant by that. I mean, because you would imagine that the, what the God or the metaphorical equivalent of God existing before the creation of the laws that govern the universe. And before there are any laws, I didn't even know what that means to say, did, right? You, you know what I mean? How, how could us, how could we discover through science the answer to that question is what I mean. Um, well, I, I, there are some people who've thought about this very deeply. One is Steven Weinberg, the Nobel Prize winning physicist. And he said that his hope has always been, and he thinks that this is a hope shared by lots of theoretical physicists, is that it will turn out that there is a, a final unified theory that is that not only describes the universe um, as we observe it, but also has a kind of logical inevitability to it. So if you change any of its parts, the whole thing would fall apart. Unfortunately, what seems to be the case, at least with uh, string theory, is that um, you have infinite choices in theories, which, which, uh, allow for inter- infinite universes. And so the fact that we're in this particular universe seems terribly arbitrary. Um, and that that's upsetting to, uh, to people like Einstein and, uh, 
and Steven Weinberg. I, I, I like to think it's, I don't know, the, the multiplicity of the world and the, uh, the, the, the sort of infinite possibilities, um, allow for more freedom and creativity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's a good thing. Well, Einstein certainly was a hardcore determinist. I mean, uh, you know, to the point of <clears throat> rejecting quantum, much of quantum physics, including parts that seem to have been vindicated. Um, and you know, I don't know. One thing I just always bring up with, I, I'm agnostic on free will. I don't know. It's a mystery to me, but one thing, if somebody's just a, a relentless, uh, determinist who thinks it's not even a close call and worth arguing about, I one thing I bring up is consciousness. The fact is, like something to be alive. I mean, that is just a complete mystery. I mean, and that's the other another mystery that that where you know a kind of connection to quantum physics is conceivable. And in fact, several have been posited. I mean, or at least two have been posited. There is the the uh, kind of Szilard, and, and this is an interesting thing about devs is like there's a scene where they lay out the basic interpretations of quantum physics on the blackboard, right? There's a lecture scene. And one is by, um, at least for a while, was embraced by uh, Szilard and von Neumann, both of whom were at Princeton for a time. And I was surprised. I didn't realize von Neumann was part of this because this seems, I think of von Neumann as this like hardcore, somewhat right-wing, totally non-mystical guy. And yet, He's associated, I guess, via his association with, uh, I think it's Leo Zillard, S-Z-I-L-A-R-D, with this idea that observation, you know, with quantum physics, there's the question, what for- forces the wave function to collapse, so to speak? At one point, all you know is that the electron could be here, could be there. There are different probabilities associated with th- different things. Next moment, oh, Here's where it is. Well, what forces it, at least in this world, what forces it to collapse? Um, the idea is observation does. And in some versions of this, it's, it's conscious observation. It's not just interaction with some kind of physical measuring device. And, um, so, so there's that connection with consciousness. Then, then there's the kind of Penrose hammer off idea that quantum effects help give rise to consciousness. That's a different thing. Right, and that inverse of what you were just talking about. The Penrose Hameroff model says that when there's a collapse of, of uh, the wave functions there, you have, you have a system that's in a superposition of states and then it's, it's affected by gravity. I think gravity is part of the Penrose theory uh, in such a way that it collapses that causes a little spurt of consciousness. So their theory actually is leads to panpsychism. At least um, hmm. that's what Stuart Hameroff says. Hameroff is sort of a. I guess um, maybe he brought that up. I had a conversation with him. People can Google it. Um, with Penrose or Hameroff? What's that? Penrose or Hameroff? Hameroff. Right. Um, Hameroff is kind of a eccentric. I don't. I'm trying to put it in a nice way, but I don't take him seriously. <laughs> I got to say. As opposed to Roger Penrose, who's one of the great theoretical physicists of the last... Well, they did collaborate, so ha- Hameroff has that on his resume, whatever you want to say. Penrose chose to co-author something with him, right? Yeah, I just that, that that just shows that even great scientists can can show bad judgment. <laughs> That's not nice. 
I know it's not, but Hammeroff has taken some shots at me too. So well, I, I like yeah, to, and now the truth comes out. I like to think that, well, he took shots at, at me after I took shots. At him. I started it. Definitely. That is tends to be the way with your relationship with uh, people in science. Oh, I don't know. But uh, yeah, free will, free will is really deep. I, I think free will is one of those. It's like, well, I forget the name for it. It's one of those images that you can see as, uh, um, you know, a vase or two human profiles. I look at free will sometimes and think absolutely it can't possibly exist. I didn't, I didn't choose to be born, you know, where, if you go back to the big bang, where did the choice begin? Um, but my personal experience of life, uh, leads me to think that I'm, you know, my life is nothing but choices. Uh, I mean, not as many meaningful choices as uh, I probably would like to believe, but um, there's this weird, we do have the ability to, ability to make choices that, that change our trajectory through the physical universe. We do. And yet, you know, I'm torn. Sometimes I think determinism would be consoling. I mean, the pressure of making decisions and, and especially the ones that involve other people, like other, like your loved ones, your kids, you know, helping them make decisions or making decisions when they're very young, just making decisions for them. Um, that's a lot of pressure and, 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 and it can lead to a lot of retrospective pain if you think you made the wrong decision in some ways. I think Lisa, I think my wife said this during the series, like, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to think, you know, we have no, no say in this. It takes the pressure off. Um, well, if you're, you know, I, I know Buddhists who think that free will is a fallacy. If you don't believe that there is really a self, then free will becomes a, a meaningless concept. Um, and I, you know, I get that idea. I, um, but, uh, to me, it's, I mean, I think we're in the realm of philosophy now and that you choose ideas not because they're empirically sound, but because they might make life easier to bear. And in my case, the idea that I have no choices in life is not consoling at all. I understand why it is to some people, but to me, that's a completely meaningless life. Yeah. But to you know, me, I don't think you, feel the pressure of decisions the way I do. I think you strike me as a pretty, you're pretty, you're compared to me at least, you're pretty uh happy-go-lucky is maybe too much of, you know, but it's like, you, you don't sweat, you don't sweat decisions very much, I, I don't think, compared to a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, I, I mean, Jesus Christ, of course I do. I might not show it as much, but um, but I've agonized over many decisions in my life. Um, as well, I everybody said, agonizes, but but not everybody uh, has buyer's remorse about uh, a ton of things. Yeah, it's funny. I I uh, as you know, I I spoke to uh, the filmmaker Earl Morris. Earl recently. Morris, yeah, I enjoyed that. I mean, uh, the uh, what a fascinating guy. It, people can Google that. It's on on meaningoflife.tv. Uh, who, you know, he was a, he was actually a graduate student, uh, I guess of Thomas Kuhn's. Yeah. Well, and, anyway, what were you going to say about the conversation? Well, it, yeah. And, uh, so we were, we were supposed to talk about Earl Morris, but what I liked about the conversation is that Morris's personality just started coming through. And at one point he's kind of 
he seems to be imagining a, a better possible life for himself in which he became a philosopher or an historian of science and went into academia. And I was saying, come on, give me Dude, a break. Are you crazy? <laughs> I said, you're not, I said, you're not possibly regretting your career as a, an Academy Award win, uh, winning filmmaker. Right. And he right. kind of looked mournful and said, I have nothing but regrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's so cool. Um, it, it's kind of heartening in a way that, uh, I, I, you know, we all could have achieved a lot more and like we wouldn't be happier. So it doesn't matter that we didn't. Um, the, the, uh, I mean, another question is, I want to say one more thing about free will and Lily, but, uh, is many worlds consoling or scary? Is, is it, is it consoling that, uh, hey, okay, maybe I screwed up and this is the world I'm in as a result, but it's another way of taking the pressure off. In other words, well, there's, there's these other versions of me and like, whatever. I don't take it seriously at all. I, I, you know, this world, this well, you just, well, you're not you're not commenting on whether it's a reassuring scenario. You're saying you don't take the scenario seriously enough to even ask yourself whether it would be reassuring. No, I find it. I, you know, ultimately, I find it kind of a, a silly idea. It's it's uh, it's you know just like a, a fantasy. I can see why people indulge in it. I think it's produced some great art, but in terms of it being something that I really. Uh, consider seriously no i don't do that you know i mean i i have trouble taking it seriously too for reasons you alluded to when you told us how many worlds there would be at this point uh and for other reasons but you know there are people who know a lot more about quantum physics than i do you you know david deutsch did you have a conversation with david deutsch on blogging headsmith you did and maybe it was during this conversation that he said but he has said at some point i know he said many worlds isn't an interpretation of quantum physics it's what quantum physics says. It, right. It's like to him, it's like, why are we even arguing about it? It is the <laughs> only, it is a clear, imp- logical implication of the theory of quantum physics. Live with it. Uh, Sean Carroll says the same thing. David Deutsch is one of the smartest people and most imaginative, creative people I have ever spoken to. But I'd say he's a fanatic on this question. Um, he also thinks that there are ways of testing multi many worlds theories, um, the many worlds theory, and uh, verifying that it's true. But I don't think anybody else takes that possibility uh, seriously. Now that's I don't see any obvious ways to test it. Not in this world, so to speak. Um, He's proposed some, but then it you know gets down to the technical details, which uh, which are way beyond um, my ken. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like there are two parts of my brain. One is the part that's sort of taking life seriously and concerned with my happiness and the happiness of people that I care about and the state of the world, like what we're going through right now with the coronavirus. And then there's this other part of my brain that loves ideas for their own sake and plays with them and likes to see other people play with them as a kind of entertainment, but it's deeper than entertainment. And in some cases, there's not a, there's not a lot of connection between these two. And, and when it comes to multiverses, uh, the connection is, is very slight. 
Do, do you know who the philosopher David Lewis was? God, that name is very just famous to philo- philosophers know the name well. He died in two thousand one uh, uh, at Princeton. Like like a lot of these figures had a connection with Princeton. I mean, uh, von Neumann, Zillard, Everett of many worlds. Um, John Wheeler is another great quantum Wheeler. Um, Freeman Dyson. Yeah. But um the uh but anyway he 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 one of the last papers he wrote before he died was uh, an argument that many worlds is depressing because he, he because in many worlds increasingly as time goes on the worlds in which there's a version of you still alive are worlds in which there's an extremely decrepit version of you alive <laughs> like it's like you know, in some worlds you get, you know, you nipped, get nipped in the prime of life. And then there's a world in which you, you know, you have a heart attack at 67. And then there's, and, and, but increasingly it's like, the, the, you know, as you get older, it's like, yeah, you don't want, you don't want to be around, uh, if, uh, if that's the version. You, let me there, just, yeah, go ahead. Let me just add one more thing. And I know we got to wrap it up, um, pretty soon, but, um, there's, there's a, um, uh, an old multiverse theory that comes from Nietzsche uh, it's called the theory of eternal, eternal recurrence. Yeah. Yeah. And what I, what I love about that. So it's not, it's not um, universes in infinite space. It's universes in infinite time. Right. If you really accept the, the idea of eternity, Nietzsche said, then you realize that um, what is happening right now, your existence is repeated an infinite number of times and and it renders it it as i recall he said that this adds extra pressure on us to do something significant with this one life that we have right now i'm not sure if i understand uh his logic but it also it sort of renders your life absurd to think of it repeated an infinite number of times. Yeah. See, I had heard two versions of this. I had heard that one interpretation of, of him is what you sa- said, and another interpretation of this idea, it's hard to believe he wrote this cryptically, but I haven't read the original writing. Another ter- interpretation of the idea is just that it was like a thought experiment, and he was like, if you are a fully like evolved person, maybe this was the Uber man, you know, maybe this was the Superman he's talking about. Like if you're the Superman or whatever, you would be happy to relive exactly the life you've lived eternally. Oh, time nice. after time after time. And I don't I don't think it meant so much that you you may you did everything right and lived the perfect life. Is that like <laughs> Maybe part of it is like the degree of stoicism it takes. Yeah, to want to do that is is a sign of the kind of person you should you should want to be. I, I don't know what it was, but but I've heard that's that not, version of it. I like that, and that sounds very that's found sounds very Nietzschean. Yeah, and, and but but what a ridiculously high bar to set for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Either well, I, I mean, another version of it is: Would you rather just die or keep reliving this life? Uh, presumably being surprised as if it were new, presumably like in some sense, not being aware of the past life, because otherwise it's just like watching a rerun. I mean, it's a, it's a different life if you know what's going to happen next, right? That's yeah, not of course, really then there's the question of, 
the continuity between your present self and all these selves in the infinite future. So I don't know. I think I, 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 I guess we've demonstrated by now that, that in spite of all the, you know, my disparagement of multiverses as a scientific concept, um, that they're enormously stimulating for the imagination and they can get us to sort of reflect on our own situation in ways that might be useful or kind of fun. Let me say one more thing about Lily and free will. Uh, in, in the end, I found this kind of inspired, this year's kind of inspiring, although I have to admit for kind of Hallmark Cardi reasons. So, there's a couple more things relevant to her her kind of volitional breakthrough that kind of shatters the universe, so to speak. Um, uh, a couple of just kind of clues are, you know, when she's, after she has that conversation with Katie in the home of Katie and Forrest, and then Katie is reporting the conversation to Forrest, she's saying, you know, that Lily, you know, she's like special. She says, you know, some people are afraid to do things. She's afraid of not doing things, right? Yeah. Like, like this is what, this is what free will is, is, is not, not being afraid to do specific things or regretting doing specific things, but, but, but being afraid of not taking the action and seeing what happens and not regretting the actions you did take, whatever they, you know, and th- that, that I thought was kind of, Interesting. The other part, the, the kind of Hallmark Party card part that I have to admit I actually found uplifting was at the very end. Um, so they're in this Nirvana world. That's a world of the past. It's an, it's a, you know, uh, Forrest daughter is alive. Lily's about to go out and meet her living boyfriends and choose one. And he says, Hey, let's enjoy this world. It's, it's a good one. It's like a resurrection. Thank you for that. And he says something like, what was, what is special about you is you always follow your own path. So, okay, that's a little Hallmark Cardi. I don't know what it says about me that I like that part where it says like, okay, this is just like, be true to yourself. Screw the, screw the people who don't like where you're headed. You know, don't be afraid to defy conventional wisdom. Uh, don't be afraid to do things that make people hate you. It's like, this is your path. Um, that's what free will is. And that, um, uh, I like that. I have to admit to having liked that. <laughs> I, I liked it too. And I think it worked also just because Lily was such a, an attractive character. She was so brave and resilient and, um, you know, loving. And it turns out she Loved the wrong guy, but then she yeah. she made the right decision later on. But uh, she's a great character. Yeah, you know, like Hallmark uh, Hallmark sentiments. That's that's the funny thing is that a lot of the great truths can be reduced to Hallmark yeah. words, but um, that doesn't mean that they're not true. No, and and there's a separate question of whether they work. Do they make you a better person? Do they? You know, does just thinking of it that way. Uh, yeah, volition resides in being true to my values and, and, uh, um, uh, as fiercely as possible. Uh, if that works for you and, uh, then it's maybe true in a, in a pragmatic Jamesian sense or something. 
and, in any and, event. And, and trying to be brave in a kind of Nietzschean sense without becoming an asshole. That is always the challenge is, you know, having uh, sufficient disregard for social norms per se that you're not just another automaton, not just another cog in the machine, and yet not becoming a total asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Something we can both aspire to. Not being assholes? I'm working <laughs> on it. Give me time. Yeah, me too. I, I just, yeah. Um, so, okay, well, thanks, John. This was great. Why don't, why don't you plug a couple of uh, things you want to plug, by the way? Wait, I'll plug my newsletter, non-zero newsletter, nonzero.org. Uh Tell us where we can find you on Twitter and other things you want to plug. I'm Robert Ryder on Twitter. Oh, I'm, uh, let's see. Um, I've been writing a lot about uh, the pandemic on my blog for Scientific American, which is called Crosscheck. You can find me there. And then, um, you know, if you're sick of COVID-19 coverage, I wrote this book that's online called Mind Body Problems, which I have talked about with other people um, on Blogging yeah. TV. And which was illustrated by the great Nikita Petrov. Yeah, yeah. I've got another book coming out this fall that Nikita illustrated. Oh, do you? Called Pay Attention, which is uh, it's a stream of consciousness account of one day in my life. Whoa. Well, don't tell me how, how it ends. I don't want the plot spoiled. <laughs> It's just a regular day. No, no, like great drama in it. Oh, you're you're not going Klausgard on us, are you? Is that uh, his name? Is that his yeah, name? I guess I, I guess I am. Oh my god! But I started writing it before. Uh, oh, well, at least do me this favor: don't pose for a black and white picture of you smoking a cigarette. Okay? <laughs> could you at least do that? Okay. Jesus. Yes, I could do that easily since I don't smoke. Good. It's a good time not to smoke. Okay. Well, thanks. This was, this was a lot of fun. Uh, people should check out devs and, uh, the creator of it should make more stuff. What's his name? Alex. What's the last name? Alex Garland. Garland. Yeah. He's, oh, final plot spoiler. You know, the, the, his movie Ex Machina. Well, what word is missing from Ex Machina? Deus. Yeah. And what does it turn out is the true or way meaning of devs. If you take the V to be a Latin V, which means it's a U, is that the, is that the deal? Yeah, it's, de- it's Deus, Deus, baby. Yep. Yeah, I, then I felt I felt dumb for not having uh, anticipated that. Oh, that's I don't know that that was a tough one. That was good though, good twist. Yeah. No, I, I I liked it too, and it was it was a lot of fun talking about it. Yeah. Okay. Take care. All right. You too, Bob. <laughs>